Blog Talk Radio. From the offices of Live the Balance here in Portland, Maine, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Helping Behaviorally Challenging Students. Uh, I'm sorry to say a topic that is of particular relevance today, December 17th, 2012, because, of course, of the events that occurred in Newtown, Connecticut, just three days ago, Uh, a tragedy that has affected most clearly the families of those who perished, but is also affecting people throughout the country who are finding that the tragedy is resonating with them in ways that are more indirect, but no less salient. Um, principal, a principal also perished. Several teachers, a school psychologist, 20 beautiful young kids, and um, Today's program will be focused on the Newtown tragedy. I spent the entire web-based radio program uh, for parents this morning focused on the topic. Um, In this program, I'm going to be doing, inviting some guests to weigh in with their thoughts as well. So if you want to hear my thoughts on the matter, the parents program is now posted on the Lives in the Balance website. I think it's called Reflections on a Tragedy. So there's no goal here to diminish the pain of those who lost loved ones in the tragedy. But that was primarily the focus of the parents' program. On this program, I want to see if we can get the perspective of a law enforcement professional, as well as from educators who've been indirectly affected just by mere virtue of their roles. Law enforcement professionals are responsible for protecting our safety. And we didn't do that this time. And that's not a failure of law enforcement. That's a um, failure of us all. But the law enforcement professionals who I've spoken with about the tragedy do have some opinions on this. And then later in the program, we'll be joined by a teacher, I think, and a principal, I think. Both are have agreed to come on conditional on what's going on in their school this afternoon, of course, and a lot of schools throughout our country are focused on this today. 
both as people who work in these buildings and as people who are helping kids in these buildings deal with the tragedy. But let's start with a uh, colleague and friend of mine, Officer Jonathan Shapiro uh, from the Maine State Police. Uh, And we spoke a little earlier in the day about this program. Uh, Officer Shapiro, welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Green. Pleasure to be here. I wish it was under nicer circumstances, but, um, well, maybe someday we'll think of a good reason for you to be on the program that has um, a nicer reason attached to it. For today, we have a tragedy and a crime and what apparently was a very confused kid who had access to weapons and who did what he did in a building in which 26 lives were lost. Um, I asked you this morning, I'll ask you again, when you as a law enforcement professional see that this type of thing has happened, aside from the tragedy of the event, what other thoughts do you have from a purely law enforcement perspective? So taking yourself out of the role of father and out of the role of, uh, well, father, husband, human, not that law enforcement professionals aren't human, but from a purely law enforcement perspective, what's your take on this? Well, I mean, cl- clearly it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a, one of the largest tragedies that the, the nation's uh, faced of this nature. And um, whenever this happens, um, you know, law enforcement professionals across the nation will uh, look at uh, you know, their exist protocols. They'll think about uh, what they can do to prevent something like this from happening again. And um, I'm sure that, you know, the state of Connecticut will be doing the same things. Um, but the thing to keep in mind uh, with these incidents is it's, it's, it's easy to it's easy to to look back at it and think of any try to think of any one entity that may or may not be responsible for this. When the reality of it is it's it's a collective responsibility for everybody in public safety, and unfortunately today that's that's uh, public safety umbrella has expanded to. Uh, to uh, people that uh, traditionally thought of themselves in that role, you know, such as school professionals now that need to be trained in, in crisis uh, safety situations. Um, but collectively, there is enough um, uh, uh, experience and uh, professionalism uh, and, um, and, and uh, intelligent thoughtfulness that we can look at these situations and, and really take them apart and try to develop a fabric of um, uh, safety that uh, would preclude or at least reduce these type of things from happening, uh, hopefully in the future. And I think that's where a lot of people are focused today. Um, And I sure do hope that the focus on looking forward uh, doesn't diminish for people the, of course, that's what we're going to be focused on in this program, but doesn't diminish for people the other big story here, which is just the unimaginable pain uh, that the loved ones must be experiencing. Uh, 
who who um, lost their children and wives and sisters um, and friends in this tragedy. But um, from a looking forward, when you hear about something like this as a law enforcement professional, do you think to yourself, um, you know, there's things that, not in response to this tragedy, but what are the obvious things that need to happen to keep this from happening again? Well, again, I I think that um, the first thing to admit and to address is is that not a one uh, domain or entity responsibility. It's a collective responsibility. And one of my biggest fears when you have circumstances like this is a knee-jerk reaction where you have a lot of legislation and a lot of policy and a lot of quick changes that are well-meaning but maybe not necessarily as well thought out as they as they could be based upon the totality and the collective knowledge of everybody. I think one of the biggest challenges that we have is inter- interdisciplinary uh, systems working well together. And uh, what you'll find, I think, when you have... In these cases, and in almost all these cases where you have this, you have somebody that is clearly suffering from um, some sort of mental health uh, issue, Uh, so they end up having their feet in one, two, maybe three different worlds. It's certainly in the the police realm, uh, certainly in in mental health uh, realm. Uh, They they may be having other crises in their life. So you have a lot of different entities that have... Uh, you know, to speak a piece of this person, and the question is, is how do we interface with each other so that we communicate well with each other, and how uh, we recognize these uh, crises early, and how do we get interventions uh, in there early? Um, you know, one of the, the programs that I worked on in, in York County, which was a improved police response to juveniles in crisis, uh, what we found with that is half the parents that called 911 because their child uh, was suffering from some sort of a emotional or, or mental health problem, uh, that was their first uh, access to the mental health system. Uh, so when you think about that, um, they don't, have, they don't have already have an existing support structure in place. Uh, they're not already communicating well with uh, you know, the mental health profession, and the first people they reach out to is the police. So, you know, the obvious question comes there is, you know, what level of training and what level of uh, response does the police respond, especially if that mental health crisis doesn't necessarily rise to the level of what the police would consider a crisis. So that, you know, leads to uh, the ability to interface well with between agencies, have a commonality language and a commonality of purpose, and that can only happen when there's good communication and good protocols put in place. All right, so now let's let's talk more about that because that's crucial. Um, my experience in dealing with behaviorally challenging kids is that frequently the, and I think this is what you're talking about, the multiple agencies, school, mental health, law enforcement, judicial, that may come into contact with a behaviorally challenging kid. First of all, all of them may not have contact with the same kid. So as you just said, Often law enforcement is the first point of contact where we are just learning that a parent is feeling like a child is scary beyond their control, beyond their capacity to intervene well. But oftentimes it's the fact that the child is involved with multiple agencies 
but the agencies are not communicating with each other, so the left hand has no idea what the right hand is doing. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how in York County, Maine, you tried to change things for the better? Yeah, well, that that was a um, you know that, that became a glaring, uh, obvious uh, uh, problem, uh, particularly you know the trends in, the, in nationally as well as locally was deinstituting de- 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 um, children's mental health needs, which uh, uh, all the information shows that that's one of the best ways of dealing with is having children and, and people with mental health problems in the community and getting services in the community. The problem with that is that there wasn't good good services in the community for these uh, people, particularly children. Uh, it, it, you know, they, they have a tendency to uh, have negative contact with different systems, particularly law enforcement. Now, if they are getting services, the question is, are they getting appropriate services? Are those services working? And if those services aren't working, who knows about it and who holds collectively everybody accountable so so that these uh, children and, uh, and adults that ha- are, need these services are getting appropriate services that preclude negative contact with law enforcement uh, and reduce any kind of aberrant behavior or threat behavior that's out there. And what you find is is that each person or each entity that deals with this person has their own set of rules, their own set of protocols, their own language even as to what would constitute a um, you know, uh, a crisis situation. A mental health crisis to a, a mental health professional is not necessarily a crisis situation for a law enforcement by definition. So you have to have that communication between uh, the, the, the different entities so that they realize that they're speaking about the same language. One of the things that I determined very quickly was that the most of the information that police capture when they deal with someone that's mentally ill or suffering a, an emotional crisis isn't necessarily useful for mental health. It's useful if I'm trying to prove a crime, but it's not useful when I'm trying to interface with social service agencies. So one of the first things we did collectively was sit down and have this discussion of what information does other agencies need from me, if I'm the first point of contact, for them to act definitively and to act knowledgeably within their their realm of influence. And just that act alone, uh, you know, we, we increased the positive results and interactions that we had with other agencies tremendously because I was now relaying positive information to them, positive in the sense that it was meaningful to them and that they could act on that and make some sort of an assessment. And that's huge. I mean, that, that, that's, that if you look at these situations around the country and particularly, you know, that I'm uh, involved in in the state of Maine, a lot of times what you find out is that there's a, there's a breakdown in communication by uh, organizational design to the, the by that what I mean is, is that we all speak in our own language that's that's the, the vernacular of our profession and we assume that the other entities understand what that is and they and we assume that everybody understands what our level of concerns are based upon our experience and training just as they just as mental health or social services assume we understand what they're talking about and we don't so it's a matter of having that commonality of purpose, commonality of language, and being able to interface with each other uh, on a meaningful uh, basis and an understandable basis. And when that happens, wonderful things happen because proper services get in place. If they don't get in place, there's a good communication flow to say that these aren't working and those systems get uh, revamped until they do work. And we've dealt with well over 100 children 
in this process, and what we found was a very small percentage of them uh, were, had needs significant enough where they needed some long-term residential, but the vast majority of them were very safe and very capable of staying in the community. But prior to this level of communication, those higher-end children would slip through the cracks until there was a crisis. And that was, you know, this system being put in place is able to preclude that. Sounds huge. Now, uh, we have a classroom teacher from Southern Maine who's called in, but I just wanted to ask you one more question before we bring uh, Kathy onto the air. Um, I think that what you've just said is huge, that um, improved communication between the different constituencies that could be responsible for the same child, number one, communicating better, number two, speaking the same language to each other, is massive. I have ridden around uh, in police cars with police officers, and um, they've said to me, I have no idea what went on in this kid's school today. All I know is what my responsibility is arriving on the scene here, and that is to make a determination about whether an arrest needs to be made um, and how I stabilize the situation until the next shift comes on. Um, without any knowledge of what went on at school that day that may have precipitated the event that prompted a call to the police without any knowledge of what is going on in the mental health treaters who may be working with the kid or his family. Um, so it sounds like improved communication and speaking the same language is massive. Um, but one other question. Uh, another law enforcement professional who I spoke with earlier in the day, and I mentioned this on my parents' program, his first question, and this has been in the news today as well, apparently some senators have come out, senators who have usually been strident supporters of gun rights, coming out and saying, um, nobody hunts with the weapon this kid used. Nobody needs the ammo that this kid used for hunting. Um, nobody needs that many bullets. Um, what's your take? from a purely law enforcement perspective on um, that particular issue and the accessibility of that particular type of weapon. Not that other weapons couldn't have done similar damage, but a rapid-firing, high-powered rifle being readily accessible to people. It, my understanding is that that's something law enforcement professionals are very worried about as well as it relates to their own safety. Any thoughts on that before we bring in to the conversation our classroom teacher? So uh, I, I think that uh, clearly there needs to be the ability to limit, uh, you know, these type of weapons and, and the ability to, you know, uh, heavily arm, with, uh, you know, multiple rounds of ammunition, um, uh, access to these these type of uh, weapons. There's no question in that. Obviously, that problem is a huge problem because, uh, you know, based the Second Amendment, based upon the, the, the polar uh, feelings in the country on, on uh, weapons, um, can that be worked on? Absolutely. But I think people focus on that to the exclusion of what I just spent, you know, the first uh, part of our, our conversation on, uh, which is, uh, you, you know, the, the easy, the, the the obvious fix that everybody's going to look at is, oh, well, you eliminate that weapon, you eliminate uh, that. You, it, you, that doesn't necessarily get, get you where you need to be. 
what not you need alone. to do You're is identify. Right. No, not alone. You need to find. You know. You know. You know. Not, most of these situations, from my perspective and from my reading of them, is there were red flags flying all over the place before these happened, and nobody definitively addressed that collectively. You know, the community, uh, um, school, uh, parents. Uh, everybody that is in contact with the person that has these issues, you know, you see that everybody's concerned, but nobody really kind of, at what point does, do people intervene? That's something that is a, I think is it maybe not an easy fix, but it's a much more sufficient fix than trying to argue the point of, of, uh, of uh, you know, Second Amendment issues and the, and the access to weapons. You know, if I could have a magic wand and say, you know, we would severely limit access to weapons, I, I personally believe that would probably be a good thing. I think if we could limit the uh, amount of uh, ammunition people could, you know, could use, particularly of this nature, obviously you've got to limit the amount of damage that can be done. But those are very, those are very contentious issues. I think that there's issues that everybody can agree on readily and everybody can see are very doable if we just sit down and work out protocols and procedures and, and good communication avenues of identifying a, you know, what's going to be a crisis early and have things in place. You know, what they find, too, uh, you know, which is an easy fix, is that if schools and, and other institutions that deal with people, uh, you know, entities like this, have very good communications, children on a daily basis that are meaningful, and this free-flowing communication, the wealth of information that is gained by that institution is huge, which preempts this behavior as well. So, I mean, that's a, that's a no-cost, uh, no-argument, uh, readily available uh, procedure that every institution can put in place that there's not going to be, I don't think, much resistance to. Um, so, yes, weapons and, 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 and ability to get to weapons, that certainly needs to be addressed. But I would like us to focus on the things that we know everybody agrees on or very easily agrees on and things that, even though they may be easy, are very, e are very are doable uh, if everybody sits down and works out a process. And those think we're going to get the maximum amount of benefit with the least amount of uh, conflict. I, I like the way you're thinking. Let's bring Kathy Bousquet onto the program. Kathy uh, is a elementary teacher in South Berwick, Maine, uh, a finalist for Teacher of the Year uh, recently. Kathy, how are things? And, and John, Officer Shapiro, I hope that you will stay on the line um, just in, uh, to weigh in further. But let's hear from Kathy. Kathy, how are things at school today? Um, I feel that things are really well here at school today. I feel like we were... Kathy, you know what I'm going to ask you? We didn't test your line before you called in, but we're having trouble hearing you. Okay. Any chance that you can call back in and we'll see if we get a better connection? Sure. Great. I'll call back right now. Great. Um, Kathy is someone who uh, you would not have to persuade to collaborate and communicate well with students. She has been a um, staunch advocate of that in her building for a very long time, and I hope that we can hear her because um, in the same way, Officer Shapiro, that you are offering us some excellent wisdom from the law enforcement perspective, um, we're, gonna, we're about to get some if we can hear her well from Kathy, uh, who's going to be offering it from uh, the perspective of a classroom teacher. Um, but let's wait for her to call back in. Uh, many of the things that you were saying um, echo some of the things I was saying on this morning's program for parents. 
this has to be a collaborative effort, and it can't just be one thing uh, that turns the tide on this. But as our president said in his speech last night, um, we really got to do something about it. What what strikes me is, I'm just sorry that in our politics these days, something like this has to happen before we take action. Um, but here's Kathy. Let's see if the line is any better. Hi, Rob. Can you hear me now? This is much better. Tell right, us, how, how are things in school today? Um, things went really, really well. We definitely were prepared. Um, our principal, Nina D'Aaron, over the weekend sent out different articles to help staff members with um, being able to relate to children as they arrive back at school today. She also sent information, news, uh, newsletters to parents and with ideas for them how to speak with children if they needed to, depending on the age, depending if they have older siblings and many different factors. Uh, we had a meeting on Friday at the end of the day as well as this morning where staff members shared their concerns or questions. So we were definitely ready for whatever the day brought, and um, the day went really smoothly. The kids were respectful, those that knew of the tragedy and the very, very sorrowful event that was really on everyone's mind, were really respectful of friends who maybe didn't know anything. And so um, I think that it couldn't have gotten any better than it did today, and I'm hoping that's the same in schools, not just in our district, but everywhere. Me too. As a classroom teacher, seeing a tragedy in which other classroom teachers died tragically. Um, do you think about your own personal safety? Is it not that personal? Um, uh, I'm sh I assume that you yourself don't feel that you are in a great deal of danger, but what are your thoughts on the loss of classroom teachers um, in Newtown? I know that, and my sister's in education as well, and many of the teachers here have family members who are in other parts of the state or even country, and in just our sharing, it's such a huge loss that as we think about the teachers and the children in the school, as we think about the teachers and these small children, we work with small children every day. Um, it especially, I think, just gave us this overwhelming sense of grief and loss that was Really, words can't even describe it. It can't even be described how emotional we all felt. Um, from a personal standpoint, I did hear part of the newscast where they talked about how the principal had at times talked with a friend about what she would do. And I will say truthfully that, you know, I have had a scenario in my mind where I thought about what if there was an emergency in the building, whether it was a fire or somebody that shouldn't be here in here. And, you know, you think to yourself, I will rise to the occasion and do whatever I can to protect my children, as the teachers did in Newtown. And so um, you don't worry about your personal safety. I really believe that teachers love their students so, so much that it's, it's not just their job to protect them, but it's what we do naturally. Um, and I am just so proud of the profession and the way that teachers are so dedicated and just put forth so much love every day 
to their students and hearing the teachers that were in their classrooms that were reassuring students by telling them they loved them, their parents loved them. Um, you know, I'm just in awe of their bravery and their heroism and the way they reacted in that situation. We, we do have training for that. We do have things in place for safety. We do practice for the children as well. And so I think that helps too because you go into that mode of this is what I do. Like any profession that works, like whether it's the police or the fire department, they have certain things they do to be prepared. In this day and age, schools do as well. You know, we have the um, we have the safety emergency committees and just things that really hopefully will work if we ever have that situation. Um, you're a parent as well. I'm sorry, I you couldn't hear you. You are a parent as well as being a teacher. Yes, I am. You, like all of us parents, or the vast majority of us parents, send your kids to school. Mm -hmm. um, and um, felt a bit of a tear in doing it because, as our president spoke about last night, we like to feel that we can protect our kids um, and we also want to make sure that they feel independent, and we also know that we can't do it all by ourselves and that um, you have to give kids some rope um, and let them explore the world, hoping that they come back safely each time. Mm -hmm. uh, any thoughts on any of that, wearing your dual hats, of parent and educator. Definitely. My daughters are a little older, and I think about that, you know, and now one of them actually is working in a school. It's her first year. She's a brand-new educator. My other daughter is still in school. So each and every day that, as a parent, you're always slowly, slowly moving them towards independence from basically from the time they're toddlers and they're walking all the way up until when they're off to college or even later when they're starting their new life um, in a new profession or marriage or whatever it is. And so I try to uh, think about it in terms of, as a parent, um, you know, each day you tell them you love them, you give them the hugs, you let them know how proud you are of them, of the gifts they bring to the world, and you believe in your heart and in your, your faith or whatever it is that you have that, um, you know, you're giving them the gift of growing as a person. And it can be scary to set them out into the world and to not know what will happen and that, you know, there are dangers and there are different occurrences, but you have to, you have to let them go and do that. And as the President said, I know that we did have some emails and phone calls from parents concerned today about what we were going to have in place and, um, you know, reassuring them that our job is to keep their children safe and as parents ourselves and whether it's our own children or nieces, nephews, um, you know, reassuring them that, they're, that they are going to be safe, that the adults in their environment are there to support them and take care of them. And I think that's what we need to do. Did you get any questions from kids today that threw you or that 
you weren't exactly sure how to answer or uh, about no, this I, and about safety? No, not at all. In fact, it was interesting because um, in speaking with the classroom teachers, we are pre-K through grade three school, and so we did not expect with our younger kids to really have any kinds of conversations. We weren't planning it. We were, if a child had brought it up, the teacher was ready to kind of take them aside and speak to them individually. It was more the second and third graders that we weren't sure what to expect. But the classroom teachers I had spoken with at lunchtime, um, recess time, even with coming in on the buses where sometimes things really get talked about, the kids really came in understanding. The parents were great. The parents and family members were great in explaining to their kids what had happened and really reiterating the fact that um, they would answer questions with their children and that they should not talk about it at school because each family might be talking about it differently. So it did not come up in the classroom at all. I did have a student initially who had been coming in and kind of made a statement in the hallway and um, you know, quickly I was able to just go over to him, kind of hug him, and he just reminded him that we were not going to talk about it at school, but that we could answer any questions he had. And again, I think that the children also are just being so careful of one another's feelings and being so sensitive to the situation that that pretty much um, made for the kids staying with their routine today, doing their work. We had shared book reading. We had writing workshop. We had a first-grade buddy class come in, and we did an activity, holiday activity together. And from what I heard from all the other teachers, their classrooms were much the same. So um, we're ready for whatever happened, but it was really, uh, it was really in this, it's nice to see that the, the children had had their questions and concerns answered at home. And had it had come up, we were all ready to just let them know that they were safe here and that we were going to make sure that they felt safe. And we work at that, as you know, because you've been to our school to visit. We really have promoted an environment in our school and this other elementary schools in our district of um, an environment that really has the safety, the sense of belonging and acceptance for all children. Um, and I think that that environment really came into effect today. Children came in without being fearful and without um, worries because that's accustomed to. They're accustomed to an environment where all of the staff takes care of one another and of the children in our care. So I'm reminded of uh, a, a motto of mine in life, which is going to sound odd when I first say it, but that I'll explain. Okay. My motto in life for about the past, uh, well, for as long as I've been married, is life is like a sea lion. And that's because um, my wife and I honeymooned in the Galapagos Islands off the coast of Ecuador, where Charles Darwin did a lot of his work. And, of course, mm -hmm. the Galapagos is absolutely one of the most beautiful places in the world. The wildlife is abundant, the food that's available to them is abundant. It's one of the absolute most spectacular places on earth. And my wife and I um, were out on a uh, zodiac touring a little bit some of the smaller islands. 
And we came across a very sad scene, a mother sea lion pulling herself up on a deserted beach um, with a bloodied side, with half of her side missing. Mm. And it was clear that she had been attacked by a shark. Um, Sea lions are what sharks in the Galapagos Islands eat. Right. And um, what became clear is that this mother sea lion, if she got stayed out of the water, she would die. If she got back into the water, she would die because the blood would attract more shark attacks. And that she had a youngster on a beach somewhere else who was not going to make it because mom wasn't coming back. And the thought that I had was life is like a sea lion. Uh, it's beautiful, but you got to watch out for the sharks. Mm-hmm. We are mm-hmm. accustomed uh, here in the United States uh, to thinking that we can eliminate most dangers, cure most diseases, keep most things safe. It sounds like we have Nina De'Aaron on with us here as well, yes? Yeah, I'm here. Hi, Good. So let me ask you both, and as well as Officer Shapiro, if he wants to weigh on on this, how do you tell kids about sharks? I think that is that's such a hard, hard thing, and we've talked so much about that, you know, here at school this today and and Friday, and you know, it is you just don't want to, you know, that fine line of elementary school students that you want to still have them hope and safety and um, have a secure feeling, especially when they walk through your school doors. You know, so we we chose to, you know, really not go too much into it for them and just let them know they're, you know, that we care about them and we would do anything to keep them safe at all times. And, you know, that's what I know with my own four elementary school age, well, one sixth grade students, you know, that's what, that's what I concentrated on because I, I, I just think it's the hardest topic to do with your children. Officer Shapiro, any thoughts on... Yeah. You're a law enforcement guy. You deal with sharks. Um, Any thoughts on telling kids about sharks or even the necessity of telling kids about sharks when the odds of something bad happening are still so small? Well, I've always had on – I think children are generally very intuitive and very intelligent. I think that uh, – I think that they – are able if if the topic is approached reasonably um and honestly um and at their appropriate age level uh, uh, able to internalize uh you know that there are threats in the world and that everybody has to be prepared uh, to deal with those threats um for your own preservation but also for you know to help other people uh when that occurs i mean i'm obviously in the profession that i'm in children know the profession that i'm in um, and um, uh, I've found myself, uh, uh, as a father, having to be able to explain uh, to all my children uh, uh, when I felt they were old enough to understand that, that obviously there are people in the world uh, and circumstances in the world that were, you know, that are harmful and that you have to protect yourself and be careful. And I've always been very straightforward uh with that, you know, again, an age-appropriate explanation, uh, there isn't an awful lot, uh, whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, that I, uh, uh, you know, tried to um, 
hide or shield or or not address with my children. I I felt that it was important for them to, you know, my main role as an adult and as their parent is to make sure that they're viable, functioning adults and able to take care of themselves. And unfortunately, part of that is to be very much aware of threats that are around you. Uh, that always has to be balanced with that there's an awful lot of good around you, too. Um, but you have to address both of those things um, if you're going to be successful and, um, and and for you to be in a position, you meaning the children, someday of taking care of somebody else because you can't blindly go through the world and not and not address the, the negative side of life. That's Meet it head on, address it, uh, but also acknowledge the good that's there. I think that age appropriate is the most important point, you know, just making sure that age appropriate and knowing your child and knowing the different children as individuals and kind of what they can handle and what they can't handle. And, you know, we talked so much and I was in contact with all of our parents, you know, talking about the media and, um, you know, that our kids are not age appropriate to be watching TV and watching all the images. And, you know, I think that's, that's the most important thing. Uh, one last question before we're probably out of time. Um, in this most recent tragedy, um, the security system that the school had in place didn't work. Um, the perpetrator didn't uh, get buzzed into the school, as was initially reported. He shot his way in. Um Nina, are you feeling like your school needs to be safer? Officer Shapiro, are there things that need to be done to make schools safer? Nina, why don't we have you go first? Well, I think this made us, you know, really as a staff in the district, reflect on what we do do, and there's always things that we can improve on. And, we, you know, we talked a lot this morning about just this is such a reminder to be vigilant about our procedures. And, you know, we talked about how, Sometimes you let people in because you kind of recognize them through the back door and just how we can't do that and we can't, you know, we can't treat some people because we think maybe they're safe and others not and just we all have to follow our policies and um, get better at that. But, you know, we do have a lot of things in place. It's just, you know, a a reminder of how much we have to uh, follow those procedures. Officer Shapiro, I go through different screening machines now when I'm getting on airplanes than I did three years ago. Post-9-11 screening is tougher. Um, Do we need to do something similar with schools? Well, again, I mean, that's uh, everybody goes for the quick fix. Um, The reality of it is is that can schools be safer? Absolutely. Schools, uh, older schools particularly, weren't designed uh, you know, with the thought of, a, of this type of a threat in mind. They were designed as community centers. They were designed to be open. They were designed to have access to. Um, so older schools are a challenge to, you know, sort, you know, using, you know, the professional vernacular harden the target uh, to make sure that it's a secure building. Um, you know, older schools are a little bit different to retrofit. They're a little bit more difficult to retrofit that way. Um, but new schools, what I find most troubling is, is that new schools are still being built, and I don't believe, and I, I could be wrong on this, but my own experience is, 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 is at least in some examples of this, where new schools are being designed and constructed, and they're really not thinking about uh, security up front. They're thinking about it, again, as a retrofit after the fact. And I think that there's a lot of work uh, out there that can be done at the design stage, particularly for new buildings, to make them much safer than you know your traditional building with with that 
frame of reference not in mind. So if anybody's going to be building a school today, I think that they would be foolish not to be sitting down not only with an architect, but with somebody that is a security expert to design that school, not so that it necessarily looks like a fortress, but you can certainly have a very attractive building that is also equally as safe. Um, and, and again, this uh, this same situation, uh, you talk about uh, different domains bringing their strengths to the table. An architect's going to look at it one way. A, a security expert's going to look at it another way. Community and school people are going to look at it a different way. But all those pieces have to be together to sit down and build a building that is that is secure. And you know, you can have metal detectors and everything else, but I really do believe the biggest thing is, is having that relationship with children, watching children walk into your building, knowing your children well enough that you'll know if there's something wrong, and knowing that you have a good enough relationship with enough children in the building that if they know that there's something wrong, and usually they'll know it before the adults in the building, that they're free to tell somebody about it. And that's your internal safety net right there, that in informal internal safety net that has proven, I think, time and time again, uh, and even in my own experience, to work very well when it works. I want to thank all three of you for giving us your thoughts today, three days after the tragedy in Newtown. We are unfortunately out of time for today, but thank you all very much for taking time out of your busy schedules to give us your thoughts. And, of course, all of our thoughts are with the good people of Newtown, Connecticut, and their loved ones as they go through the pain that they have endured and will continue to endure for months and years to come. Thank you for listening today. Be back in January with more Helping Behaviorally Challenging Students. Until then, 